I want you to turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 6. I wanted to bring you a message this morning that God has put in my heart. And I've called this the reasonable alternative to faith. The reasonable alternative to faith. And so I want us to begin in verse 1. It says, after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed him. Because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. And I think this is important, because I believe that God wants to do miracles in our day today. And one of the things that attracted the crowds to Jesus was his ability to perform miracles and be able to cure people that were suffering from diseases. In America, we have been so accustomed to being able to have other resources than God. But yet, I believe God wants to work miraculously through our lives. And I, th- I think we have to believe Him to do that. <clears throat> Thus, the reasonable alternative to faith. And that is, when there is a reasonable alternative that seems logical, that seems to be the direction that most men are going to take. And um, rather than the way of miracles and faith. It says in verse 5, when Jesus then lifted up his eyes, he saw a great company come to him. And he said to Philip, from where shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Isn't that wonderful that the Lord doesn't need counsel? And if he's asking you a question, it's not because he's trying to find out what to do. He's testing us to see what we will do. He already knows beforehand the solution to the problem. Philip answered him, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them. That every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here which has five barley loaves and two small fishes. But what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples and the disciples to them that were set down. And likewise of the fishes as much as they would. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain that nothing be lost. And they gathered to themselves together and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, some people want to say that a lot of the people in the crowd had little bag lunches themselves. They had nothing to eat. But the loaves and fishes that Jesus did a miracle in. And the Bible clearly says it was a miracle. And it wouldn't have been a miracle if everybody had a few bags of their own. And so this was a miracle that Jesus did. This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. And so what I want to talk to you about right now is the life of faith that we're supposed to live in regards to Jesus Christ and what he is able to do, what he is able to perform through our lives. What is interesting is, is you find two great disciples of Jesus 
um, facing the situation with the Lord. None of the other disciples are mentioned. Maybe they're not close by. Maybe they didn't hear what Jesus said. But certainly Philip and Andrew did. And so when Philip is being addressed by Jesus, Philip immediately looks to the reasonable alternative. And that is money. That's all we've got. We have no food. And this is all the money we have. And all the money we have is not enough to buy enough bread so that even all of the men could have a little bit. We couldn't even give them that. And so this is no solution at all. And Philip doesn't even offer him the money. He doesn't say, here, take this. This is all we've got. He doesn't even do that. He just simply shares a very reasonable and intelligent argument as to why it is impossible for them to meet this need. Andrew, however, brings to Jesus a solution, but it doesn't seem to be a very great solution to a great problem. Because it's very obvious that a couple of fish and some bread is not enough to feed 5,000 men, not counting the wives and the women and children. And so this, though it doesn't seem reasonable, nonetheless, Andrew gives it to Jesus. And the Bible says Jesus knew what he was going to do from the very beginning. And so I want you to understand what I believe Jesus was going to do was this. He would take whatever faith was exercised and he would do something with that. It is very possible if Philip had given Jesus the money, Jesus could have multiplied the money. Maybe there'd have been 12 basketfuls of money left over after all of that. But that wasn't given to Jesus. The only thing that was given to Jesus was the little boy's lunch. So whatever it might be, Jesus knew what he was going to do. I'm going to operate by faith and I'm going to take care of this crowd. And whoever is going to join me in this, I'm going to take what they give me and I'm going to do a miracle. And beloved, I want to say to you this morning that Jesus knows what to do with Baton Rouge and he knows what to do with America and he knows what to do with the world. He is not around asking people's opinions or trying to get a committee together to find out what is the next step for God. He's waiting for a people of faith, not a people who are reasonable, not a people who look for a human solution, not for a bunch of naysayers, which may seem to be what most, quote, believers are today, very upset and depressed about the conditions of the world that are doing very little. But what he's looking for is people of faith. Who's going to give me something? Who's going to enter into a relationship with me and trust me to take what they have and do a miracle through it? And I want to say to us that the world is on our doorstep. It really is. The world is on our doorstep. And Jesus notices them. He notices the confusion and the fear and the anger and the bitterness. He knows this, he notices the depression and the despair and the murder and the crime and the theft that is in our city. Jesus sees it all and it's all around his church and he wants to do something about it through his church. But we typically just operate through the typical patterns of our life, wanting something to change, but never engaging Jesus to any way so that change can actually happen. And if the world is really at our doorstep and Jesus understands where the world is, the question is, can you feed them? Can you minister to them? Can you take care of the addictions and the abuse and the problems that are going on in our city? And I believe that if we can get them to Jesus, then the miracle will be done.
Can you believe God to meet the need through your life? God is not going to send the needy to you in order to mock you because God wants to be the answer through you. And there are situations that you meet in life. There are situations, there are people in your family, people in your workplaces, people in your neighborhood, friends and relationships that you have that have legitimate needs in your life. And God has allowed you to have a some type of relationship with them, not so that you can be mocked, but so that you can provide the solution to their life. You can help them. And I believe miracles are things that really need to happen. I want you to understand that the pattern of God and the relationship of God throughout history has always been that God wants to use a human instrument to perform his will. God can do anything that he wants to do. God could have rained manna down upon that crowd. God could have given them flesh to eat. He Just like he did in the Old Testament, he could have had the birds just come right there and they could have eaten the birds. He could have given them steak dinners. He could have just said, let it be. He could create anything out of nothing. But he chooses to work through a human instrument. It was through Moses that God broke through Egypt and the Red Sea. It was through Mo- Joshua that God overcame Jericho. It was through Elisha. He had to lay his body on that dead boy for the boy to be raised from the dead. God used Rahab to deliver the spies. God used Elijah to call down fire from heaven and expose the weakness of Baal and his prophets. It was Elisha who bound up the Assyrian army. God used David to overthrow Goliath. God used Jehoshaphat to kill an army. God was with Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego as they refused to bow to an image. God was with Daniel who walked into the lion's den. It was Paul and Silas who praised God in the prison. And it was the church who prayed Peter out of prison. Wherever there's moves of God, you're going to find a human instrument. And the question is, why not you? Why can't God use you to be a means of miracles that will absolutely astound the world? I thank God for the humanitarian effort of the church. I thank God for the humanitarian effort of Christians and the church throughout history. But honestly, guys, if the church is only doing what other institutions can do, then how are we any different than any other organization that is trying to produce or or give self-helps or relieve the suffering of people if we are simply relying upon reasonable methods to relieve people's suffering? Whether it's a hurricane that hits our state or whether it's the rapid and horrible addictions that we face in our city. If all we are doing is what other organizations can do, then where is the miracle and the testimony of the living God through our life? God wants to change lives. God wants to save men. And why did the crowds follow Jesus Christ? Because he performed miracles in healing their diseased. And they followed him and they were attracted to him. And then Jesus also wants to use his disciples to do this as well. We have to understand that we are a chosen people. 
God has chosen us to be his ambassadors and his delegates in this world. There is a call that is on the church today, and it is far greater than we could ever imagine. This is the moment that we have been destined to live in. This is the moment that we have been called to. I do not believe that our fathers were greater than us. I do not believe that the men of the past were more spiritual, more godly, or or more intellectual with the things of God than we are today. I do not believe that. I do not believe that our fathers of the past had greater access to God or greater faith than we do today. I do not believe that. I believe that the greatness that has ever been found in humanity has always been the residence of Christ within the life and what God was able to do through humble people. And I believe that this is a day that is going to be very glorious for God. God has not abandoned his church or his glory in this moment of time. God has not settled himself to have a lesser form of Christianity at the end of the age. God is committed to the glory of his son Jesus Christ. And that glory is to be manifested through human agents called the church of Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you as you see this End of the age quickly approaching. And if you don't, please wake up. Invest yourself in the kingdom of God. Invest your money. Invest your time. Invest your resources in the kingdom of God. Because when he appears, you will not regret that you did. I encourage you to do that. God's commands must be our demands. They must be. If God commands us to feed the crowd, then we must demand of God to do the miracle to perform it. If God commands us to give the glory of Jesus on the streets of Baton Rouge, if God commands us to go into the harvest, then we must demand the power of God and the help of God and the grace of God by which we go and do it. It is a relationship that God is after in our life. And my prayer is that God will save us from unreasonable, or or not unreasonable actually, but God save us from reasonable people. Because I believe reasonable people are the greatest hindrance to the church of Jesus Christ and the move of the Holy Spirit. And for decades, if not hundreds of years, the church has been bound up by reasonable people. People for decades have led the church of Jesus Christ who gathered information and intellectualism from what we call higher learning, seminary graduates, doctors of theology, and professors of theology. And in all of their learning, and I'm not saying there aren't exceptions, but beloved, they are the exception. That oftentimes when people go through these modes of studies in schools, They come out with such intellectual garbage that they explain away the miracles of God. They explain away the supernatural because it's not reasonable. They want to tell us that that God really didn't part the Red Sea, but there was only six inches of water in it at the time because there was a drought. And so it really wasn't any big deal for Israel to cross the Red Sea in a drought. Well, then explain how Pharaoh and his entire army and the horses drowned in six inches of water. It's even a greater miracle. But these professors and theologians that 
have no regard for God or his miracles, want to be so reasonable that they have bound up the church of Jesus Christ. But I believe God has people today. And I believe God has people that he is forming. There are Simons that are becoming Peters. And there are Jacobs that are becoming Israels. And the, the, the church, the culture church, the refined Christians that fill up America and Europe for the most part are not going to let these Peters serve. And they're not going to respect the Israels of God because they were once Simons and they were once Jacobs. But God doesn't care what you do with them because God will use them and God will raise them up and God will make his name great in the earth. Not through the cultured and the refined, not through those who have worked so hard to have an image of godliness, but those who have been broken and shattered and crushed by the grace of Jesus Christ. And their sins have been exposed for what they are. And these people come forth refined in the fires, pure and useful to God. And they're not the most educated. D.L. Moody could hardly put two sentences together. His grammar was horrible. And yet thousands would come to hear him preach because of the power of God that was upon his life. He was not the educated man. He was the spirit-filled man that God used in his life. The value among the people of God must be the people of faith and the people with spiritual unction. Not so much the people of intelligence. Because it's the people of intelligence that bypass the Lord. But it's the people of faith that get a hold of God. And that means anybody is able to be used of God. The lesser men... Who believe in the greatness of God. Have always been the great instrument of God. Not the noble and mighty men. But the lesser men. The lesser women. Have been the ones that have been used by God. Those who have been broken and humbled. From their ambition. And their arrogance. They have nothing to offer God. But the Christ who lives inside of them. These are men who are ruled out by men. But they're qualified by Jesus Christ. Who would have had Peter preach on the day of Pentecost? There's not a deacon board. There's not a committee on earth today that would have allowed a man like Peter to preach just a few days after he had denied Jesus so horribly. But the Holy Ghost used him because he was a broken man and he was a humbled man and God would use him. God has not handed over his kingdom to darkness or hell. He has not handed over his kingdom to the intelligent God still operates through the basis of faith through men and women who will trust him. God will not give up to the darkness. He will not bow down to Satan and his church will not either. We have to believe and we have to know in the greatness of our God and in his grace. And we have to reckon upon God to do this. I read an interesting story. It was just an interesting commentary about the Apostle Paul. And the, and the commentary was this. Imagine if Paul were filling out a missionary application. And, and I thought this was interesting because it's just the life of grace. And here's a man of faith who was very mighty in God. And I don't think any of us could refute that. But if you're familiar with missionary societies, you'll understand this. And so this is their response to the Apostle Paul's missionary application. Do you think it's seemly for a missionary to do part-time secular work? We heard that you were making tents on the side. In a letter to the church at Philippi, you admitted that they were the only church supporting you. We wonder why. 
Is it true that you have a jail record? Certainly brethren report, certain brethren report that you did two years time at Caesarea and you were imprisoned in Rome. You made so much trouble for the businessmen at Ephesus that they referred to you as the man who turned the world upside down. Sensationalism has no place in missions. We also deplore the lurid over-the-wall episode at Damascus. We are appalled at your obvious lack of conciliatory behavior. Diplomatic men are not stoned and dragged out of the city gate or assaulted by furious mobs. Have you ever suspected that gentler words might gain you more friends? So I enclose a copy of Dalius Carnegie's book, How to Win Jews and Influence Greeks. In one of your letters, you refer to yourself as Paul the Aged. Our new missions policy does not anticipate a surplus of elderly recipients. We understand, too, that you are given to fantasies and dreams. At Troas, you saw a man of Macedonia. And at another time, you were caught up into the third heaven. And even claimed that the Lord stood by you. We reckon that more realistic and practical minds are needed in the task of world evangelism. You have written many letters to churches where you have formerly been pastor. In one of these letters, you accused a church member of living with his father's wife. And you caused the whole church to feel badly. And the poor fella had to be expelled. Your ministry has been far too flighty to be successful. First Asia Minor, then Macedonia, then Greece, then Italy. And now you're talking about a wild goose chase to Spain? Concentration is more important than dissipation of one's powers. You cannot win the whole world by yourself. You are just one little Paul. Your sermons are much too long for time. At one place you talked until after midnight. A young man was so sleepy he fell out of the window and broke his neck. Nobody is ever saved after the first 20 minutes. Dr. Luke reports that you are a thin little man, bald, frequently sick, and always so agitated over your churches that you sleep very poorly. He reports that you pace around the house praying half the night. A healthy mind and a robust body is our ideal for all applicants. A good night's sleep will give you zest and zip so that you wake up full of zing. You wrote recently to Timothy that you had fought a good fight. Fighting is hardly a recommendation for a missionary. No fight is a good fight. Jesus came to the world not to bring a sword, but peace. And you boast that I fought with the wild beast of Ephesus? What on earth do you mean? It hurts me to tell you this, Brother Paul, but in all of the 25 years of my experience, I have never met a man so opposite to the requirements of our foreign missions board. If we accept you, we would break every rule of modern missionary practice. And that's the reasonable mind. It's not uncommon. I remember when Brother Clendenin was resigning his church in his 70s to become a missionary to Russia. That he had so much flack from the Assemblies of God mission board that he said, I'll do it without you. I don't need your money. I don't need your backing. How many people have gone into the mission field, such as Hudson Taylor and others, with that very attitude that they were not sufficient to serve on the basis of the standards that the missionary societies wanted. But they went and did it anyway and turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. 
Don't let reasonable men rule you out. Please don't do it. And so I say this to you that it is imperative for you to hear God. It is imperative that you hear God. In Jeremiah 29, it's one of my favorite passages of Scripture, and I want you to read this with me. And I'm sure for the most part you're familiar with this, but I want you to see all of it. In Jeremiah 29, verse 11, it says, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you an expected end. Then shall you call upon me. And you shall go and pray to me. And I will hearken to you. You shall seek me and find me. When you shall search for me with all your heart. And I will be found of you. Saith the Lord. Who is he speaking to? Who is he talking to? These wonderful plans. These wonderful purposes that God has for their life. He says in verse 8, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, let not your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you, neither hearken to your dreams which you have caused to be dreamed, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. So who is he talking to? I know these plans that I have for you. Plans to prosper you. Plans of peace. Plans to do good with you. He's talking to a people who are steeped in witchcraft. He's talking to a people who have given themselves to idolatry. He's talking to a people who have rejected him. And they have accepted false prophets and diviners to be the ones that they're going to listen to. He is talking to a reprobate people that he is going to have to judge by sending them into captivity under Babylonian authority and rule. Because they are so absolutely corrupt to the core. And God is telling these very people, listen, I know the thoughts that I think toward you. They are good. I have a good word that I've spoken over your life. And I am going to bring it to pass God knows the thoughts that I think toward you. God knows what he thinks about you. You don't even know what God thinks about you. We're too busy listening to the thoughts of Satan and the thoughts of men and the thoughts of our own reasonable arguments that we disqualify ourselves so much from serving God. I'm too old. I'm too hurt. I'm too scarred. I'm too marred. I'm not qualified. I'm not smart enough. I'm not intelligent enough. I haven't been in the church long enough. I haven't walked with God long enough. I've sinned too much. My past is too bad. And we have listened to Satan and we have listened to our reasonable arguments that we can't even hear what God's thoughts are for us. And the thoughts that God has for us are incredible. And they're beautiful. And God wants to work these things in our life. And beloved, I say to you that this is the day of miracles. It is the day of the activity of God. And I'm not calling for this. God is calling for this. He has always called for this. Jesus prophesied it. The works that I've done, greater works will you do. What is it about your life that affects your neighbors? They either hate you or love you based upon your Christianity. And if you're just absolutely not affecting them at all, Then what type of Christianity are you living? One that is so palatable that even pagans do not see the light that is in our life. 
Where's the miracles of God, the power of God, the demonstration of God through our life? And actually, the people around you, the people in your neighborhood, the people on your street are not looking for a reason to hate you. They're actually hoping that there's a God they can believe in. And they hope that you will provide that answer. They don't need another theologian, another history professor, another scholar, another intellectual to prove to them why God created the heavens and the earth. At the heart of their hearts, they know that. But where's the reality of this God? Where's this Jesus Christ in your life who sees the hunger and the need and the desires of the masses around you? And Jesus saying, who will feed them for me? And you go to Jesus and say, well, I don't have much. I don't have a degree. I don't have a doctorate. I can't memorize scripture. I've tried. I just can't do it. But I believe in you and I love you and I've got nothing to offer you but an absolute failure and reject. And Jesus says, that's what I'm looking for. And if you will believe me, I will do miracles through your life. And I will confront the darkness and I will deliver people from their oppressions and their sins because I love them. And I will love them through you if you will believe me. And that's all that God is looking for. I don't believe that Jesus was at all interested in somebody bringing to him several hundred thousand dollars to feed 5,000 men. Because that would have been a reasonable solution. I believe he really wanted the five loaves and the two fish. Because I want to show you the power of God. And I want to use you to do it. And I'm going to get the glory And you're going to get the joy. Could you imagine? We still today wonder, how did that happen? How did 12 basketfuls remain left over with just five loaves and two fish? How did he do it? I don't know. But I can only imagine the expression on the faces of the apostles as they began to feed those 5,000 men and see what God was doing. And they were a part of it. And how's God going to do it in your world? I don't know. But I would love to see the expression on your face when God brings revival to your school. When God brings revival to your family. When God does miracles through your life and you have no idea how he's doing it. You're just stunned at the greatness of God. The incredible ministry that he has given you. So I just close with this. I think it's come time for us to faith differently in life. And quit being so reasonable. Reasonable men are destroying our country. And they're not really reasonable. Reasonable men are destroying every aspect of society. Because the only way anything can really be successful is by God. And the only thing that pleases God is faith. And without faith we can't do anything. And whatever is not faith is sin. And so I encourage you to begin to faith your life out. So that you can experience the things of God. Trust that Jesus actually lives inside of you. And if you're content with your life. If if you are content to meet Jesus. With what you've done for him on earth. If you're content with that. Then praise God. 
Because that's exactly how you will meet him. But I'm not. There's still a race to be run. There's still a job to be done. There are still opportunities to make Jesus Christ known. There are greater ways by which the Holy Spirit can get the glory of Jesus through my life. And I want him to have it. And so I have to faith differently. And my body's tired. And time is running short every day. But I want to faith my life out with the expectancy of meeting Jesus and giving him as much glory as I can. Not really me doing it, but God doing it through me. And herein is my father glorified. John 15, that you bear much fruit. Are you content with the fruit that you have to give God? What is it? Who goes with you to church? Who are the souls that you've led to Jesus Christ? How many people have you baptized in a baptistry? I, I, I know this might get a little on the toes, you know, but it's worth asking. The Apostle Paul actually said to the believers, you are our trophies in his presence. When we stand before God, it is all of you that we have been able to lead to Jesus Christ that are going to be the fruit that we give to God. So it's just natural to ask, who comes with you to church? How many people have you led to Jesus? How many people have you watched baptized as a result of your life and sharing the gospel? And I'm not saying you actually got to say the sinner's prayer with them. Maybe somebody else did that, but were you a part of it? Were you a part of the sowing, the watering, the reaping? Was there something in your life that was a part of that? Is God able to do it? And I'm not trying to say, you know, go out there and win souls and be reasonable and persuade men. And No, I'm not talking about that. Because if you persuade a man to believe in God, somebody tomorrow is going to persuade them to become a Jehovah's Witness. But what I'm saying is this. Can you believe God to use your nothing to do miracles through your life? And we don't know how he does it. He just does it. And you begin to faith your life differently. All God wanted from Moses was his stick. An 80-year-old man with a stick overthrew the greatest nation in the world. Imagine that. That's all he wanted. A little boy David going after Goliath. All Jesus wanted, give me five loaves, two fish, and I'll do it. So he doesn't need a lot from you. He just needs faith from you. And when you give him that, you'll be amazed at what Jesus Christ can do. So focus upon the desires of God. What are the desires of God? Let this be at your attention. Jesus Christ. Let him be your focus. What is it that's in his heart? What does he care about? What moves him? It hasn't changed. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me. To heal the brokenhearted. Do you know any brokenhearted people? Even in your own church? To set at liberty those that are bruised? You know anybody that's in captivity? You know any people that are addicted to their smartphones? Not even bad stuff on them. You know any people that are addicted to social media and spend four or five hours a day looking at it? They're, they need liberty. It doesn't have to be opioids. What is it? Are they addicted to their jobs? And they never go to church? Can you go and win those and evangelize even the Christians today? And evangelize them and help them? Who are the poor and the needy that need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
Who are the outcasts that needs to know God has accepted them through his son, Jesus Christ? It's the hurting. It's the poor. It's the sick. It's the diseased. It's the lame. It's the sinners that Jesus has a heart for. It's the sick. That's who he has a heart. That's what he's doing. And if you listen to him because you're occupied with Jesus, you're going to hear his cry for them. How can we feed them? How can we heal their broken heart? How can we set them free? And you're going to come up with reasonable alternatives. I don't know. I've never dealt with a person with an opioid addiction. I've never, I've never tried to help a prostitute before. I, I don't know. Am I going to have to deal with the, the, the pimps and all of that? Are they going to kill me? Are they going to come to my... I don't know. I don't know. And, and we reasonably just back out. Rather than say, Lord, this is all I got. And I give it to you. Watch what God does. Watch what he does. And I thank the Lord for that. Father, thank you in Jesus' name that you have desired to bring us into your fellowship and be a means of your glory and to bring fruit to you because in this you're, you're greatly glorified that we bear much fruit. And Lord, I, I want to bear fruit. I, I can't. I don't even know how. I don't know what to do. But Lord, I just give you myself for that. I want you to use me and speak to me and let your grace change me and help me, God. And I pray that everyone here would have that desire as well. Speak to us, help us, change. Whether it's just going out to the abortion clinic this this week and just walking and praying. I don't know. I'm just going in faith. Maybe God will give me somebody to talk to. Maybe God will do a miracle in my life. I'm just going to go where the people are and I'm going to trust God to do something through me. I'm just going to say something this time. I'm just going to ask my coworker, can I pray with you? I'm just going to trust you in faith. I want to be led by you. I want to know the thoughts that you think toward me because they're good and they're peaceful. Even if I've been so bad, your thoughts towards me are so good. Help me to be ready to meet you, not in regards to my salvation. I trust and am secure in that, but in regards to my fruit, my labor for you. Help me, God, by your grace. In Jesus' name. Let's worship the Lord for just a few minutes. If you want to pray, this is an opportunity to just set yourself before God. Let God speak to your heart. Let Him speak to your life.